Good morning again. Got a bunch of extra papers this morning. I got to get situated. There we go. Um, yeah, so let's start out with some things that don't necessarily make us right. So being passionate about something doesn't make us right. Being accurate in our theology, though important, doesn't necessarily make us right. Being charismatic doesn't make us right. Being witty or clever doesn't make us right. Speaking in a way that really resonates with you and makes you feel good does not make me right. See, there's a lot of things we can mistake for rightness. And it's usually the stuff that we value. It's usually the stuff we want. It's usually the stuff that speaks to us in a way that really impacts us and really resonates with us and that we really are excited about anyways. But none of that stuff in and of itself makes us right. It doesn't make us wrong, but it doesn't make us right. Having a really, really huge church says nothing about the rightness of the people who lead it. It doesn't say anything about their wrongness either, but it by itself means nothing. Having a lot of followers, having a lot of people that want to listen to you, having a lot of people that want to hear you, none of it makes you right. And in an age where it's easier and easier to be more and more polished and more and more profitable to be in Christian ministry and more and more or less and less cost to being in ministry and more and more profitable to be known in ministry, the need for our discernment to go up increases dramatically because the cost to entry is not I may go to prison if I preach this stuff. The profit of ministry may be that I get a 17,000 square foot mansion in Texas. Or that I get a huge paycheck or that I write books that everybody wants to buy. And so it becomes more and more important that God's people practice discernment. And that's what John's going to talk to us about today. You see, there is nothing about whether you like me or dislike me that makes me valuable. There's nothing about if I'm good at this or not good at this that makes me valuable. The only thing of value I have to offer you is not my ability or my skill. The only thing of value and of authority that I have to offer you is the book that God wrote. And to the degree that I tell you what God wrote is the degree of authority and value I have in your life. And to the degree that I do not is the degree that I have nothing of value to offer you. So turn with me to John, 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. We've been dealing with this undercurrent of false teachers all the way through the book. And they deny some really big, important things about Jesus and who he is and what he's done. But that denial of who he is, as it always does, has led to them to minimize certain practices. And so it's now okay to be immoral. In fact, they're going to say it's, it's, it's fine to be immoral and right with Jesus. It's fine to live in unrighteousness and be right with Jesus. And so they deny big things about Jesus, and then they deny the moral demands that God makes on our life. Read John, 1 John 1, uh, 1 through 3 to catch up to that. In section 1, God is light. He's righteousness. He's the fullness of life. He's joy. He's purity. He's everything that makes life worth living. And therefore, his people must live in life, in light, in fullness, in righteousness, in purity. The next section we've turned into now is God is love. Love the way he defines it. God is love. And so that's, <clears throat> excuse me, that's section two. 
But it's a love not just in our theological words. Yes, God is love. It's love in the boots on the ground, practical, hands dirty, serving kind of practical love. It's not just love in word, it's love in deed also. Which brings us into chapter 4. At the end of chapter 3, look, you've got the Spirit. God's given you the Spirit. But that brings a warning with it. Not everything that is spiritual is from God's Spirit. Hear that. Not everything that is spiritual is God's Spirit. Not everything that gives you the goosebumps is from the Spirit of God. That's the warning he's going to give us. Listen to him as you listen to the Spirit and John as he writes. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, and by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world. Little children, you are from God, and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth. In the spirit of error. If there's ever been a time in the life of the church that we need discernment, it's now. We have a culture that's secularizing, but guess what? What else can they do? Lost people act lost. Newsflash. You can't put religious clothes on lost people and call it Christianity. So it's secularizing. Big deal. The problem isn't that the culture's secularizing. The problem is the church is secularizing. And it goes both ways. We've got huge swatches of the church, man, and it is God, guns, and country. Salute and let's go. And the kingdom of God is equated to the kingdom of America. And the Messiah is not Jesus. The Messiah is my political candidate getting elected, right? Y'all okay? You got quiet all of a sudden. That's not true. But we've also got a huge swatch of the church that has gone in more progressive Liberal directions, and I don't mean that politically, I mean that theologically. I mean that in the looking at the book, and we've got this big progressive swatch. And we have this authority, we have this book, we have this Bible, and the progressive branch of the church wants to say, I don't know. Can you really know? Is it really that important? Why don't we just agree to disagree on that one? Why don't we just give away issue after issue to a culture? Maybe they'll like us in the end. And it's wrong. We don't have a patriotic Christianity. We are good citizens. And we don't have a, a give-up-our-authority Christianity. We have a humble winsomeness that loves all people towards the truth of the gospel, not by adjusting the truth of the gospel. This is discernment. It is walking the fine line of biblical faithfulness with loving compassion so that people can hear the gospel and be saved by it. And that's what we're called back to. Apply discernment to everything that you hear or read. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray that your spirit would give us a spirit of wisdom, a spirit that points to the glory of Jesus Christ, a spirit that gives us 
the wisdom to know that in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in the world, there's empty philosophy. There's empty deceit that will leave us bankrupt, that will leave us broken, that will leave us lost. But in Christ are the fullness of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we can embrace him and we can know him and we can follow him. God, give us a spirit of discernment to walk in this age faithfully, to walk in this age wisely. God, I beg for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Apply discernment to everything that you hear and everything that you read. Apply discernment. This, I hope it sounds like a plea. I am begging you and I'm begging me. I'm pleading with us to have a spirit of discernment. Look at the first test. Discern using a robust view of Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. Discern using a robust view of Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. There's people like me, and I've done it, stand up here in pulpits like this, or we get behind a computer and we type something out, or we go to a conference and we start our sentence with something like this. Let's look at the life of Jesus, because Jesus was all about blank. And you know what we put in the blank? Our view, our agenda, our philosophy, our bent, our whatever. So Jesus was all about righteousness, just like the Pharisees. Jesus was all about feeding the poor. Jesus was all about social justice. Jesus was all about holiness. Jesus, and, and what we do is we shrink Jesus into this one-dimensional character that looks like us. We shrink Jesus down into this, this little kind of flat surface, not 3D, not living and breathing, but this flat person made in our image. And so Jesus is passionate about what I'm passionate about. And Jesus doesn't care what I don't, about what I don't care about. And all of a sudden Jesus looks more and more and more like me. And we, we do it on like kind of every side of the spectrum. But here's the problem. Jesus alone gets to define Jesus. Jesus is who he is, not who we define him to be. Jesus defines himself. Jesus is stamped in the image of God. He is not stamped in our image. And so we have to be careful because what we end up doing is we shrink him down into this one little figure part that's just kind of about us, and that's not the way God works. By the way, Jesus made everybody mad, except for those who the Spirit was speaking to and drawing. And all of them from every stripe came. Jesus would speak and make everybody mad, except for the prostitute that walked into the house of a Pharisee and wept at his feet, wiped his feet with her hair, and became a believer. And the Pharisee, who finally got the courage to follow him publicly, and Nicodemus, who decided to pay for his burial... Those who heard the voice of the Spirit came, and they came across the spectrum. Jesus went to them, but he didn't become them. He was him, and people who heard came and followed him. And so, he is not this one-dimensional figure. He is somebody that when you meet him, he changes you to be like him. He doesn't change himself to be like you. He defines everything. He's Jesus. 
And that's what we're going to look at in this first part of this, this text. Because every cult that you will ever run into, and every false teacher will run into, at some point has walked away from a full, robust, beautiful, multi-dimensional, multi-faceted view of Jesus that is so much bigger than we want to give him credit for. Every false teacher at some point shrinks Jesus down. And what they tend to do is they'll overemphasize some part of Jesus that they like, and they'll underemphasize the parts they don't, or just erase it all together. And so what is our answer as a church to get a bigger and fuller and more robust and more glorious and richer view of Jesus over time? Let's look. As we go into the text, here's the flow of the text. So there is this general command that he gives us, opening it up. Don't believe every spirit. Do you know why he says that? Because not everything spiritual is God's spirit. Hear that. Not everything spiritual is God's spirit. Not everything that gets you excited is God's spirit. Not everything that gets you goosebumps is God's spirit. Not everything that is said in the name of God is from God. Test the spirits. Don't believe every spirit. Command. Command two, test the spirits. Test what people say to you. Test what I say to you. Don't let it slip. Don't let it pass. Test it. Don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits and such a general command. How do we test them? We test them by their confession of faith, by their confession of Christ. What do they believe about Jesus? Who is he? Is he God in human flesh? Is he the very glory and image and likeness of God? Is he fully man? In a perfect combination, 100% God, 100% man. Did he come to make people happy? Did he come to fix injustice in the world? Or did he come to atone for the sin that separates you eternally from God and with a gospel that, that reconciles you to God, leads you back into the world to maybe fix social issues and to maybe fix other problems and to fill out relational wholeness and social wholeness and physical wholeness? Yes. But did he come to die on a cross for sins? Yes. He came to seek and save that which is lost? Yes. And so do we shrink him down or do we see this is who Jesus is in all his fullness and this is what he has accomplished and a cross. So command the spirits test by what do they say about Jesus? What's their view of Jesus and who he is and what he's done? And then test by the word that he has given. Because there is a message and what we believe about Jesus will come out in our message. And so is our message in the dialect of the world with the substance of the world so that the world loves it? Or is our message sourced in God from his voice and his substance so that his people hear it? And that's the flow of the text. A command that leads to some tests of the word, the test of the internal witness of the spirit, and the test of what we believe about Jesus. And so here are the essential tests that you can put to me and every single person you'll ever hear or read or listen to. How big a view of Jesus do we have? Do we err or minimize or take away huge chunks of who Jesus is? Two, does our message saturate in the biblical story? Does the Bible pour out of what we do? Or is it kind of we sprinkle it across the top to make it spiritual? What we say about Jesus, what we view about Jesus, the word. And then the third test is a subjective test. It is the Holy Spirit in you. Does the Holy Spirit inside of you resonate and agree with 
the message or the person that you're listening to. If you will put those tests genuinely and authentically and humbly up to what you hear and to who you listen to and what you read, then you will come out with discernment on the other side. And that's the plea of John for us. That's the plea of John, and that's the plea of the Spirit for us. My page keeps flipping. Stop it. Here we go. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Why? We've already said it. Because there are spirits that are not God's spirit in the world. Every message that comes to you has a spirit behind it. It comes from the vein of a certain spirit, from the substance of a certain spirit. It originates in a certain spirit. And don't believe that every one of those spirits is God's. It literally could say, stop believing every spirit, because church, you've already started to believe spirits that aren't the spirit of God. Stop doing that. Stop taking spirits that are just a little bit like mimicking the Holy Spirit, but aren't the Holy Spirit. Stop believing them. Instead, what should we do? Test the spirits to see if they're of God. That is not a command for pastors. That is not a command for theologians. That's not a command for the seminaries, though it includes them. You know who it's a command for? You. You will be accountable before God based on the discernment and the tests you put up against what you hear and what you repeat. And so test, the word for test is the word to prove out. And by the way, it's a positive word. It's like a teacher who gives a test and he's like, I really expect you to get an A because I've given you everything you need to be successful. Now take the test. Prove it out. Or it's like another story. A little restaurant's opened up in Statesboro lately. Some of you may have heard of it. They make donuts there. And they don't just make them. They show you them being made. You can see them come through the proofing box. Not that I've watched that much. You can see them go into the fryer. You can see them flip and go through the rest of the fryer. You can see them go under the glaze of sugar. But you know what else you see in the process? They have a little scale sitting on top. And randomly, he'll pop with that little straw, a donut, and he'll stick it on the scale. Does it meet the standard? Randomly, another one. Set on the scale. Weigh it out. Does it meet the standard? That's what he's telling us to do. Take things that Chris says, not in a hypercritical way, right? Because you're expecting to be proven true. You're expecting the people you listen to to be telling the truth. But you're commanded to discern. And so every once in a while, the the teaching rolls by the belt. Huh, let me check that. Pick it up. Stick it on the scale. Does it meet the standard? And it's commanded that every teacher you have and everyone you listen to from time to time, especially when there's something like, oh, wait, hold on. Pick it up. Stick it on the scale. Do they meet the standard? What's the standard? Funny? What's the standard? A lot of people liked it on Facebook? No. God gave us a standard. Does it meet the standard? Does it meet the standard? Test the spirits. Test the teachings. Test the heart and the spirit that originates what you've just heard by the standard. Expecting it to pass. But putting it to the test to make sure. And do you know why? The text tells us. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. From the beginning of the Old Testament, there's been warnings about false prophets. All the way through the Old Testament, warning about false prophets. All the way through the New Testament, warnings about false prophets. Why? Because false teachers are rampant in every single age, including this one. Many. Do you see that word? Many false 
prophets have gone out into the world. The world is replete with, it is saturated with false teachers. That's what it says, right? Many have gone out into the world. Let me tell you just a few things from Jesus and some other people. That's why I have an extra sheet. This is Jesus. You know, the one we want to define in our own image. This is what Jesus says about it. So listen to a few things Jesus says about this subject. Matthew 7. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. They look like something different than they are or they wouldn't be false teachers. You wouldn't believe them if they were ravenous wolves on the outside. Matthew 24. And many false prophets will arise. You hear that many language? Like we're not dealing with a few. We're almost dealing with the majority but a lot. And they will lead people astray. And listen to this. When they lead people astray, lawlessness will be increased. Immorality goes hand in hand with false teaching. And that's what we saw in John, right? That's what we just saw a couple of weeks ago. Matthew 24, this is scary. False Christ and false prophets will arise and they will perform signs and wonders so as, if possible, to lead astray the elect. If it were possible for the elect with the Spirit of God in them to be deceived, false teachers would do it so well, especially as the age comes to a close, they would do it so well that even the elect would be carried away by what they're saying. That's Jesus. Hebrews 4 talks about the word is living and active and it's sharper than a two-edged sword and it pierces to the vision of the soul and the spirit and it lays us open and discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. Hebrews 5.14 talks about maturity this way. For those who have the powers of discernment trained by constant use to discern what is good and evil. What is the mark of maturity? I have applied discernment over and over and over again to where I'm actually trained and skilled at it and I know what is good and what is evil. Here's a couple others. Second Timothy. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers. What will their teachers teach them? What suits their own desires. We will accumulate people that tell us the things that we want to hear. They'll tell us the things that we're excited about. They'll tell us the things that matter, that we think matter. Second Peter, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there are false teachers among you, secretly bringing in destructive heresies. Jude 4, certain people have crept in unnoticed, and they pervert grace into sensuality, to sexual sin. Here's the thing about false teachers, guys. If it were obvious, we wouldn't fall for it. If it were obvious, we wouldn't be deceived, right? They deceive because deceivers are deceptive. I wish I could say it a different way, but the, the meaning of the word deceive is to trick you. And, and usually people, are, if they get to this level, they're really good at tricking you. And so it's all the more important that you put these tests over people's lives and you put these tests over people's teachings because deception is deceptive. It's tricky. It tells us what we want to hear. Our natural selves like it. Whether it be the natural self of legalism, because I think I can do some things to earn God's good favor, plus I think I'm doing better than most people, therefore I'm good. Self-righteousness is what we call that. Or, God thinks I'm so wonderful and so worthy and so great, and man, I'm just doing good. Self-esteem. The message of the Bible is Jesus' esteem, by the way. The message of the Bible is Jesus-centered. And when we are Jesus-centered, Jesus then 
does his work within us. All right. False teachers are coming. We must be discerning. Many, many have gone out into the world. And so it's all the more important that we test the spirits. How do we test them? The next verse kind of tells us. Look at the whole picture of their Christology. That's a big word. I just want you all to know I went to school and that you're paying attention. That means what do we believe about who Jesus is and what Jesus did? We evaluate people first by their Christology, by what they believe about Jesus and who he is and what they believe about Jesus and who he has done or, or what he has done. And so their error starts in their confession, in their belief about Jesus. And in this case, in John's case, they were denying that Jesus was God in human flesh. You know, Christmas, this thing we're celebrating, the word became flesh. He dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. That's what they denied. They denied that God truly and fully became human and lived among people. But whatever the, the deception, whatever the error is, is that we take a big chunk of Jesus and we change it. A big chunk of who Jesus is and we erase it or we minimize it or we overemphasize it, uh, some other part of him. And that's the test. You're of the spirit. In this case, if you confess what is true about Jesus, he came in human flesh. And you are not from God if you deny Jesus. If you deny huge chunks of Jesus. In fact, look what it calls them. Antichrist. They oppose Jesus by denying him. They oppose Jesus by redefining him. They oppose Jesus by minimizing him. By making him one-dimensional. Modern Christianity, in seeking to be relevant, whereas a past generation sought to be behaviorists and legalists, general, not everybody, the present generation wants to minimize the moral standard of Jesus. They want to minimize that he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Blessed are the pure in spirit, for they shall see God. They want to take that away. They want to have this soft view of truth. And so we've traded discernment for relevance. And that's dangerous. That's dangerous. And so I want to beg you, test me. Put me up against the word. And the degree that I follow it, the degree that I bring it, is the degree of authority and value I have in your life. And the degree that I deviate from it is the degree that there is not value in what I'm saying. And you test everybody you listen to. And you test everybody you read. And you test every truth that is coming at you. Test the spirits. And you see if they're from God. Second test. Discern by the authority of God's word and God's victorious spirit that is in us. Discern... By the authority of God's word and God's victorious spirit that is in you. How many of you, I know it's a little older now, how many of you have watched The Deadliest Catch? Come on, somebody. All right, there you go. The Deadliest Catch, these rugged fishermen fly into Alaska. And they make their way to Dutch Harbor. And a few like greenhorns that think, hey, I went out on my dad's fishing boat one time. Surely I can go into the Bering Sea. They make their way up there too. And they go to Dutch Harbor. And in Dutch Harbor, they get their food and they get their supplies and they get their fuel and they've got mechanics there and they've got some medical care there, you know, Coast Guard stations, everything they need to supply, everything they need to be provided for. It's safe. It's within a harbor that that keeps the roughness of the ocean out. And, and so they can dock safely there. But it opens up to the Bering Sea 
And when they're loaded and ready, they walk out into this you know, 30 to 40 foot sustained waves, hurricane force winds, bitter cold. You fall off the boat and it gets its name honestly, deadliest catch. They've got capsized boats they show. They have to call in the Coast Guard to come and get them and bring them out because it gets messy sometimes. The Word of God is our Dutch harbor. It is where we can go and anchor safely. It is where we can go and get refueled. It's where we can go and get medical care that we need. It is where we go to get provisions. It's where we go to prepare to go out into the insanity of the world and its rough ways and its craziness and its culture and its church life and all these things that kind of collide together. We can go back to the Word. We can go back to a safe harbor. But here's the problem as we see this growing... I hate it because the culture has stolen our words... We see a growing liberalism, and I don't mean that politically, I mean that biblically. We see a growing liberalism, and the key tenet of liberalism is this. The Bible has some authority, but so does science. And science has some authority, so does biology. Biology has some authority, but so does my experience. Experience has some authority, and so do my feelings. And my feelings have some authority, and so do my thoughts. And do you see the problem? We've got the Bible, experience, science, feelings, thoughts, culture, all on the same level. But what happens when they conflict? Because they do a lot. Do you know what goes first? The Bible doesn't really mean that. The Bible doesn't really say that. Can you really know what's in it anyways? Do you see what you've given up to get there from here? To get to the place where you can be Rob Bell and say there is no hell, do you know how much of the Bible you have to erase? Do you know what you have to give up to get there from here? You have to give up the authority of all the words to get rid of some of the words. Do you know what you have to give up to get to the place where homosexual marriage is okay or to agree to disagree on it? You have to give up that you can know that the words of the Scripture that you're reading are the words of Scripture that you can understand. You have to give up that the authority of the Bible does not change because some biological supposed evidence contradicts it. You have to give away the authority of the Bible to get there from here. And what I would say is it's too much to give up. It's too much to give up to get there because what you're left with is no certainty. Nothing that you can really know. It's only guesswork anyways. You can just guess at it. No, there's a God who spoke because there's a God who wants to be known. There's a God who created and created with your senses so that you can see his glory in creation and worship him. There's a God who spoke words, not so that you couldn't know him, so that you could know him. If he didn't want to be known, he wouldn't have revealed himself. He wouldn't have given you a book in the first place. But this is the problem. To get to compromise on some of these areas, what we have to give up to get there is not worth it. Because you've banked your eternity on this book. What if it's just guesswork? You've banked your, your eternity on this book. What if science comes and proves there's no soul? You've banked your eternity on this book. What if archaeology says there's no Jesus? You've banked your eternity on this book. What if... Cultural norms say this book is irrelevant. Does it all go away then? The authority of Scripture is essential to building your eternity on something that does not shake. And what you have to do to get there from here on any of the modern uh, issues that we're facing, what you have to do to get there from here is you have to pull the pins of the foundation out and hope that something holds when you're done. 
And I just beg you, don't do it. I beg you not to, but if you need to, walk away from it altogether. But don't dismantle it piece by piece. Don't take out pieces of it and think that what's going to be left in the end will be worth it and strong enough for eternity. Don't do it. Practice discernment. Discernment starts with this book and its authority. All right. And there's a spirit that he's also put inside of us. So let's look at it. Our theology always works itself out into our practice, and it always works itself out into our functional beliefs. And that's what it does in, in this text as well, if my page would quit flipping. Here's what it does. Little children, you are from God. Do you know why he says that? It's because biblical Christianity will always be the vast minority. And I mean that in 1776 when this country got started. Biblical Christianity will always be the minority. You know how I know that? Because Jesus said it. There's this huge way that leads to destruction. Many find it. There's this little bitty narrow gate that leads to life. Few get in there. So we know it. Biblical Christianity is always the minority. And so in the face of being the minority of of practicing Christianity and culture, and in the face of teachers that you love and respect going away from faithfulness and authority, and then people following after them that you love and respect, you know what the temptation is? Maybe I'm the wrong one. Maybe I got it wrong. And so you know what John says? You're God's. You belong to Him. You are His. You're from God. And not just that, you've overcome. The word, we got our word Nike from it. You may have some Nikes on today. To overcome, to conquer. If you wear Nike, you're saying, we conquer. That's why it's a great sports apparel name, right? We're conquerors. You're a conqueror. Why are you a conqueror? Because it seems like we're losing the world. We will, many few. Why are you a conqueror? It seems like even the church is slipping into this, this, this liberalism. They're abandoning faithfulness. Why are we conquerors? Everything looks like it's crumbling. Why are we conquerors? Less and less people are identifying with Christianity. Thank God because they're perverting it where nobody wants what's left when they claim it. By the way, if you rant on Facebook, don't put God at the end of it and don't post about God after it, okay? So we've got this cultural Christianity drifting, but what are we losing? Christianity's on the decline. Are we losing? No, you're more than conquerors. Why? Not because of outward success. You're more than conquerors, not because you can see the evidence of conquering. Why are you a more than a conqueror? Why have you overcome? Look at the verse. You have overcome because greater is the one that's in you than he that is in the world. Because the Holy Spirit inside of you is more powerful and more glorious and more valuable and more wonderful and more majestic than the one that is in the world can even compare to. You see, we want to think about it like there are two superpowers dueling it out. The old Russia and the United States. Bam, we're just fighting. Hopefully good will win. Oh, it's going to come down to the wire. No! No! God is so much infinitely greater and superior and more glorious and more majestic that Satan has to grovel up to his throne and say, please, can I get this Job guy and give him some sores? No, but you can do this. Greater is the one that is in you than the one that is in the world. That makes you a conqueror. Not because of outward circumstances, not because of the way things appear, 
but because of the spirit that is inside you who has sealed you for eternity with God. That's what makes you a conqueror. And then he closes out with this final, uh, the final test, the final discernment. There are two very different sources teachers come from, two very different origins teachers come from, two very different subject matters or substance teachers come from. But here's the scary part. Make sure you don't miss it. Make sure you see what God is saying. There are also two very different people that like the message of these different teachers. And that's the scary part. They are from the world. They are natives to the kingdom of this earth, not the kingdom of heaven. They speak in the dialect of this earth, not the dialect of heaven. They have a message that is all about the substance of this earth, not the message of the substance of heaven. And the people that love this message are the people that belong to this world, not heaven. Look at the text. Don't take my word for it. Don't think I'm just trying to prove a point. Let's look what the text says. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world. They have the world's message attached to them, and the world listens. They get media fanfare. They get publicity. They get clap. Oh, one of those backwards Christians finally got it right again. The world loves it. The problem is when the world loves our message. And I don't mean the prostitute who is saved by Jesus or the tax collector that's saved by Jesus loves Jesus. I mean when the world loves our message because it, it resonates with them and they, they, it speaks on their terms and it makes okay what they want to be okay. It means our message isn't from the king. It's not from the king. It's not from the sovereign Lord of the universe. It's from the world. It doesn't give us any right to be ugly, any right to be harsh, any right to be unloving. We're not talking about that. We're talking about just simply the, the winsome subject of our message. And then look at the next one. As he closes out, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. There's several interpretations of who we, the we is. I'm going to just give you mine for the sake of time. We are from God. And I would say the apostles. We, the apostles, John to these people, we, the apostles, are from God. And if you know God, you will listen to the apostles. By extension, we, not me, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, the apostles, who have recorded by the inspiration of the Spirit, who have recorded for us an authoritative word, whoever knows God listens to us. The degree that you can listen to me with any value whatsoever is the degree that comes from right here. The degree that you need to abandon ship is the degree that I walk away from this right here. God's people, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. God's people love God's book. God's people love God's voice. God's people love to hear the voice of Jesus, not randomly saying what they want to hear, but they love the voice of Jesus in this book. And if you're not opening up this book, you're not hearing the voice of Jesus. If you're not opening up this book on a regular basis, you don't love the voice of Jesus. If you're not opening up the book on a regular basis, you don't have any clue if what I'm telling you or someone else telling you is from this book. And so I beg you love this book. 
I beg you to read this book. I beg you to take this book and make it part of your life. I beg you to say, God, I want to know you because this book is the means of knowing you. Not just some thing I'm going to put up on an altar and worship it, but I'm going to see you in it and I'm going to worship you through it. Those who know God listen to us. And that us is not Chris Fowler. That us is the voice of the apostles and the prophets of the Old Testament still speaking today by the Spirit. What message do you love? The one that speaks to what you naturally love? Are the one that the spirit inside of you hungers and craves and thirsts and yearns for. The one where the spirit says, oh, it is better than gold and it is sweeter than honey. What voice are you listening for? Test the spirits. Test the spirits to see if they are from God. Because the message that you love may say something that you need to hear about where you are. I say that because I love you and I say that because the text says that. I say it because I want you to love the voice of Jesus more than any other voice. And I want you to hear the voice of Jesus more than any other voice. And so how do we test, how do we discern a huge, robust view of Jesus that is always expanding into more than we thought it was and bigger than we comprehended him to be? How do we know the voice of Jesus or how do we discern the Spirit's? Does it saturate, not just sprinkle the word of God, does it saturate itself in the word of God? Do the themes and the patterns and the message and the quotes saturate themselves in the word of God? How do we know? How do we discern? Does the spirit that God sealed you with shout for joy at hearing hearing the voice of Jesus come through the message? That's how you know. Two objective ways their, their view of Jesus and the view of Scripture and its interlacing. And then one subjective way, does the spirit inside of you shout with joy at the message that is coming because it resonates with the kingdom of heaven? A few quick practical things as we close. First, remember not everything spiritual is true. Not everything where there is excitement, not everything where there are goosebumps, not everything that is spiritual is God's spirit. I hope I've said that enough that you're going to remember it. If nothing else, write it down. I don't know, tattoo it on your arm if you're into that kind of thing. Not everything spiritual is from the Spirit. No, I don't recommend that. I'm just... Not everything spiritual is from the Spirit. Our feelings and our goosebumps do not determine the Spirit. They don't not because the Spirit touches our emotions but that's not the only gauge. It's not the only barometer. Second, discernment is a precious responsibility we all have. I want to help you with that. And there's part of my job as shepherd to defend. But it's your precious responsibility to hear me and to hear anybody else and to read things. Not with a hypercritical spirit, but with a spirit of discernment. And you get that responsibility. Truth will have to be defended in every age it exists. But here's the thing. If we give up on it, it will not just, we may be saved and drift, but if we give up on it, those who will need the refuge of the harbor, those who will need to come in from the battering of the waves one day, will have blocked off the entrance because there's no longer this place of provision. There's no longer a safe place to dock. So we may get in, 
But who will we shut the door to in the process? God's spirit in you, not your circumstances, determines victory. You will never be victorious next, consistently by the world's standards. But your victory is secured. Why? Because the spirit's in you. Your name's written in the book of life. You've already won. Now go live like it. Last one, love, hear, read God's book. I hope that you leave messages knowing, like, that guy really believes this book. You may not, but that guy does. I hope you leave every teaching environment we have and every sermon we have thinking, you know what? I can read this book and I can know God through it. Like, he doesn't hide it from me. He doesn't make it sound like only professionals can do this. He actually wants me to read this book and thinks I'm going to get something out of it about God if I do. I hope you leave here with nothing else. If nothing else, I hope you leave here with that. He believes this book and he thinks I can get something out of it. Love the word. Not for the word's sake, but because the God who reveals himself through its sake desires to be known by you, desires to be experienced by you, desires to be encountered by you. Test the spirits. Test the spirits. Test me. Test everyone. Do they have a huge, glorious picture of a glorious Jesus? Does the word saturate and ooze out of everything? Does the spirit leap for joy at the words of the king's message? Let's pray. Father, thank you that your goodness and your power are over all things. Thank you that you have chosen, graciously chosen to let us know you. You don't owe us to know you. Anybody after Adam, you don't owe them anything. And yet you've written a book. And you've said this book is more powerful than seeing someone raised from the dead. You've said this book is more valuable than any gold that could be possessed. You've said this book is sweeter than anything that we can have. Father, help us love you, love your word. Help us to love you so much that we guard our hearts with discernment. With discernment. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.